My name is Dario Hasenstab. Today, we will analyze how to understand the United Kingdom through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. However, before we get to today's episode on the United Kingdom, first, we answer the question of the week sent in by you, our listeners. If you have a question or a comment about past episodes, please make sure to contact us at thewesternbubble at gmail.com. When you submit a question, please indicate if you would like us to name you or if it is an, an, an anonymous submission. Today's uh, question comes from an, an anonymous listener and they asked, are we heading towards a bipolar world between China and the United States? Or are we there already? Um, Boulder, what, what's, what's, our, what's our answer to this? The short answer is that we're not there and we're not going to get there. Uh, the issue is that when we think of a bipolar world, we think of the Cold War. We think of Moscow versus versus Washington in the 1960s, Kennedy versus Khrushchev. But there was such a specific, unique period in our human history where technology had advanced, but not yet to the level where we are now. Um, global politics was very quickly evolving. There was still a real fight between ideologies. None of that is the case right now. There's no real ideological fight. People could say, oh yeah, China is, is has a very different governance system than the US. That is true, but this is not about converting the world. China is not there to convert the world into um, a sort of communist kind of system. The United States really has no clear ideology anymore. That's one of the reasons why we're discussing this podcast. Uh, it is sort of surviving on the, on the remnants of its liberal democratic capitalist approach from the past hundred years. So there's no major ideological fight. And economically, China and the United States, however powerful, do not control global economics in any way near the way that the Soviet Union and the United States did in the 20th century. On top of that, uh, there are just too many other potential powers knocking on the door. India, um, Russia to a certain extent, the European Union to a certain extent, or maybe individual European powers to a certain extent. We'll have to see what happens with the African Union and African cooperation, Latin America. There's just too much going on for two powers to dominate the world right now. And that's only going to get worse or or better, depending on what perspective you have. So are we moving into uh, a bipolar world? No, we're moving into not even a multipolar world, I would say, but a world in which there are some actors that are clearly more powerful and influential than others. Um, but overall, an anarchical society, if you like, with very little control by one or a small group of uh, nation states. And I think with this, we have answered uh, the question suffic sufficiently. If you, our listeners, or the person who asked this question uh, does not feel that way, uh, then make sure to send us another email and uh, we, might, we might do a specific episode about this topic or answer your question uh, the next week again. We could have um, a segment on complaints by listeners uh, if people <laughs> exactly. are interested. I think that will come up in the future. Um, and so, so with this, uh, I would say let's uh, just go ahead and dive into uh, the topic of today. Uh, so into the United Kingdom. And we're starting as always with what are the facts in two minutes? Two major events have occurred in the United Kingdom over the past month. 
namely a new prime minister, Liz Truss, and the death of Queen Elizabeth uh, II. In particular, the death of uh, the Queen seems to mark the end to an era in British history in which it went from being the largest global empire humankind has ever seen to a nation outside the European Union, abandoned by its traditional allies and uncertain about who it is in the 21st century. It currently has a population of 67 million. It uh, has the sixth largest economy in the world and is lagging behind in GDP per capita compared to Western allies. Similarly to the United States, poverty has been on the rise in the United Kingdom, with one in five people living in poverty. It is also a nuclear power, has a veto in the United Nations Security Council, and it is currently ranked the eighth strongest military in the world. And with this, I think we can move on to the next category. What is the bubble? And here, I think it makes sense that uh, we, as always, start all the way at the beginning with a bit of a historical overview. Um, so, Walter, in which ways is the United Kingdom uh, meaningful when it comes to history and Western history in particular? If you were to analyze uh, Western culture in general and, and, and the evolution that we've that we have discussed previously of how we got to liberal democracy. You would have to look at French Enlightenment. Um, you would have to look at German culture, uh, musical culture, arts, the, the arts coming from Germany, science, scientists coming from Germany. But Britain, both because of the timing of its empire, as well as its internal, if you like, ideology, has been by far the most influential nation when it comes to Western politics, the way that politics is shaped currently in the 21st century and over the 20th century, that is heavily, heavily indebted to British traditions, British philosophy, uh, philosophers. And the reason for that is that um, the British Empire became powerful at, right, at, at the right time for that, right? Uh, the British Empire um, succeeded, if you like, the Spanish Empire and the very brief Dutch trading empire. And it rivaled the French Empire for a while until it overtook it in terms of power. Uh, the 19th century and the early 20th century were the moments that Britain was at the height of its geopolitical power. And that was also the time that the West was going through this identity change, that it started asking itself, whether it was still comfortable with the old monarchical structures, whether it was comfortable with the old way of doing things. And it started this introspective process of changing its inner inner makeup, right? Changing the way that it, it behaved towards itself. And given that at that time, the British Empire was by far the most influential and powerful, they had this incredible impact on that political process. Um, add to that the fact that they were victorious in the two world wars of the 20th century and add to that that their approach um, obviously led to the creation of the United States. And the United States, when Britain started losing its power, the United States took over that, that mantle, took over that, that position in the world. Britain is by far the most influential Western nation when it comes to liberal democratic political values and as a result um, it it it's still uh, in many in the hearts and minds of many still holds a special position in that regard exactly so examples of what you just mentioned would be Hobbes and Locke 
when it comes to influential writers or the Magna Carta um, as one of the one of the older uh, documents establishing rights. Um, and then another period uh, in this time uh, that I want to highlight, I want to talk about a little bit, is the Pax Britannica um, for uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, because it, the, the wording, um, I mean, we, we are always very careful on wording and what it means. Uh, the wording is, is a bit difficult, right? Because if you think about the the British piece, uh, the, what it means translated, it's yes, there was no no rival uh, rival power that would challenge the United Kingdom. Um, however, I read earlier that what, 400 million people were added to the British Empire. And um, I doubt to what extent that happened under peaceful means. Yeah, so we're talking about the period much of the 19th century, uh, much of Victorian times. And uh, it, it's sort of similar to Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace, which uh, was about 150 years the height of, of of the Roman Empire's power, and what you really mean by that, what what is that for a Roman citizen or for a British citizen in the nineteenth century, life was pretty safe. You didn't have uh, any threats. Uh, Napoleon had been defeated. Uh, you, you, no one was going to invade your island. That doesn't mean that you were safe to others. That doesn't mean that you were actually not engaging in violence towards others. But if you were living in London. In the during that period of time, you were uh, you were fine, and this is, by the way, a very interesting item that often gets neglected. I think the fact that Britain was on an island, and ever since, so they felt threatened during no, the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon had some vague ideas of invading Britain. I mean, of course, before that, there's the famous or infamous Spanish Armada, and there was the Battle for Britain in the Second World War, where Hitler. Um, uh, had plans to invade Britain. But beyond that, Britain has always been able to stay out of European violence and conflict itself, even though it was involved with its armies, with its military and with its economic influence and political influence. Uh, they never actually reached the British shores. And that is very, very important psychologically because that means that Britain could look at the Europeans, could look at the West and say, we are the ones observing you and we are the ones who show you how it is done. The, the, the main reason for that was just that there was sea between them and everyone else. But it creates a sense of inherent superiority because you're not going to be destroyed by the wars that are raging on the continent and that you yourself are involved in. So Pax Britannica is a bit of a weird wording, but what you really are saying there is that the British could claim that they were living in a peaceful society even if they weren't um, necessarily peaceful towards others. And we, we've seen a similar um, well, pathway or development uh, when we talked about uh, the United States, the rise of the United, of, of US foreign policy in episode uh, 7, uh, where I mean, it's, it's a bit of a bigger island, uh, it's a continent, but uh, with, with this strategic position, you have Canada, Canada to the north, Mexico to the south. Uh, you weren't necessarily impacted by, I mean, uh, yeah, European power politics. Exactly. And this is exactly why 9-11 was such a shock to the system. Because it was the first time since 1812 that mainland USA had been hit by a foreign power. That the not being affected, at least not in a very significant way, uh, beyond soldiers dying, you know, soldiers dying is important, but from a big picture perspective, what's much more important are your cities intact, are your citizens safe? 
not being affected by the wars that you are involved in gives you such an enormous advantage, political, strategic, strategic, psychological, over your rivals, right? And the fact that the United States, despite being involved in many wars during the 20th century, was not actually itself hurt by them, and the same could be said for Britain during the 19th century, actually gave them an incredible advantage over a country like France or Germany or China or whoever else you want to look at. And another reason why the, the Pax Britannica is important is because here we see the rise of British, of British hegemony over the world. So suddenly you have the biggest, uh, I mean, as I read out in the fact sheet, a more unchallenged uh, empire that uh, humankind has ever seen. Yeah, I, there, there has never been a, a larger empire than that. And I very much hope that it will never be one either uh, in, in the future. And this was... Um, a moment that because of its ability to leverage its navy and through its navy it, it first of all protected its homeland no one could actually touch Britain as we just said but it could also maintain its power projection across the world um, Britain basically became untouchable literally uh, in this, but also figuratively right it, 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 it became a huge hugely powerful nation um, that others simply could not even try to rival. The French and the Prussians and the Germans later might have had, Bismarck might have had some ambition in that regard, but they simply did not have the means to challenge this control over the oceans that Britain had during that time period. Mm. And then moving on from the Pax Britannica to the two world wars. Uh, so you already mentioned how big and important that feeling was or still is within that British sentiment that both world wars had been won where I mean it is important to distinguish between the two world wars I mean so you had the first one which is always a bit romanticized uh, I feel like and then you had the second one and um, so the UK played a different role uh, in, in both world wars yeah well I mean I think a lot of people are um, realistic about the horse of the first world war it, also in Britain, I mean, if anyone ever, um, you know, has time to watch uh, Blackadder's fourth series, which is about the First World War, uh, I, I mightily recommend it. Uh, Britain is, uh, British people are relatively realistic about how ho horrific the First World War was, but there's also this sense of we were fighting the Hun. We were fighting the evil barbarian from across, and that was, and, and that was then. Um, that belief was consolidated during the Second World War when there was no doubt that they were fighting evil with uh, Nazi Germany trying to take over the world. And so the, it's very important to realize that the First World War was not a truly a, an ideological war. It was, it was a geopolitical fight between powers, almost inevitable if you, if you read historic literature about uh, these these two major alliances clashing with each other in 1914 not because one was morally better than the other but because they had slightly different perspectives on how uh, the 20th century should be shaped and and what their role was in that uh, that is very different from the second world war and in many ways it's unfortunate because by telling yourself we want two world wars and these two two world wars make us the good guys, uh, you're actually denying that besides the Second World War, you are just a 
geopolitical power like any other. And there's nothing inherently good about you fighting the First World War. Yeah. And then from the two world wars, uh, we then move on. So here we still have, uh, as, as you just said, we still have the United Kingdom as a great power. Um, you can already observe that it's no longer, maybe, well, no longer global power, but the moment where you can definitely pinpoint uh, to in history where the United Kingdom lost its status as a, as a super or a global power or superpower was uh, the Suez Canal crisis. Absolutely. So this was at a time that Britain that Britain um, couldn't anymore control its colonies, like none of the European countries could control their colonies. And they, uh, as a result, they decolonized. Um, former colonies became independent. And of course, if you look at the British Empire from the 19th century that we just mentioned before, that was all based on its colonial possessions. I mean, the Crown Jewel India and, and many, many places across the world. Um, it wasn't purely based on its internal economic strength. So it's not it's not a surprise that the moment that Britain loses its colonies, it then also loses its um, its its status of first and foremost uh, global power in the world. Now, the Suez Canal was particularly painful because it 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 almost formally showed the decline of Britain because what it did was Britain still falling into its old habits of trying to control, in this case, Egypt and and, and trying to control um, the Mediterranean region and the United States basically telling Britain to get the heck out of there. Um, Basically that that they had no business doing what they were doing and that the United States would no longer prove that. It was particularly painful because the United States, of course, was a former colony itself of Britain. So that was the, the, that's like the final straw that shows the British uh, that, that, that it's done, that, that, that any imperial ambitions are gone. But of course, in many ways, that can be traced back already to the decline early in the 20th century. And after the Second World War, by 1945, it was completely obvious that Britain no longer could claim that top spot in the world um, as they had known it for about 150 years. And and I think what what must be even more painful is the way that this happened, is the way that the United States called uh, called back uh, the United Kingdom. It was, I think, I'm never too good with, with the US presence. I think it was Eisenhower during that time um, who... Uh, who basically said, if you do, I mean, yeah, if, if you do not move out of here, uh, we're going to sell all, all the bonds that we own from you and basically send you into financial turmoil, which is definitely a clear warning shot. It's not, we don't even need a military to stop you. We will just tell you that, hey, we have the bigger economic power. Um, if we do this, you're, you're, we're going to send your country in spirals. And the fact that your former colony does this, as you just highlighted, must be painful if you have this vision of yourself being this this uh, this big global empire. Yeah, of course it was Eisenhower, and it uh, it was this it was within the context of the Marshall Plan, basically Europeans being bailed out by the United States, which we've discussed in previous episodes already, and and it, it was such a slap in the face. I mean, it was completely obvious. Now, Britain should never have let the Suez crisis happen in the first place, right? I mean, they should never have entered into that game. It, it, was, it was just, it, it is a sign of a country that still was sort of sleepwalking towards the future. They didn't really know that the past had 
had been left in the past, that the past was history. They still thought that somehow, uh, because of centuries of dominating the globe, they were still very much in a mindset like, of course, if we make these certain decisions, if we want to decide what happens halfway across the world, or in this case, on the other side of Europe, uh, then um, then we can do that. And uh, this kind of brings us to the last historical uh, when, uh, event we want to highlight. I mean, I'm always a bit careful calling something that happened seven years ago historical, um, but I, I assume by now we can. And that is the Brexit referendum and then the following uh, Brexit uh, when what in 2016 uh, the British uh, population voted to leave the European Union. And I mean, what we will, I mean, so as we highlight the Suez Canal crisis as the end to the status of a global power, I think Brexit marks the end of the status of a major power because now there's less, I mean, before you were part of the uh, biggest economic union in the world, um, of a continent uh, with, with 500 million people, a lot of economic power, a lot of military power, a lot of still just word in the world, and suddenly you leave this. And I think what we want to look at here is why did they leave this? Because there was this promise or this thought, this will, this desire to kind of, yeah, grabbing it back, like this sense of sovereignty over what we can say and what we want to say. Absolutely. So there are these two items. Why did they leave and what are the consequences of that? And what the fact that a majority of those who voted, not a majority of the population, because many people didn't vote in the referendum, but uh, those who, uh, a small majority of those who voted wanted to leave the European Union has to be directly related to still these delusions of Imperial Britain. There, there, there's no way around it. They're not explicitly, not that if you ask someone in the street, do you think that Britain can still be a global empire? They will probably say no, but still this lingering, lingering psychology of representing the past, representing history, where you ruled, where Britannia ruled the waves, right? This this idea that somehow you were always the one superior to continental Europe because you weren't affected by the wars, as we just mentioned. And as a result, you do not need those Europeans. You don't need others to be strong and to be powerful. It is, of course, an incredible misreading of geopolitics in the 21st century because the only way that you can actually have significant influence is through the European Union, if you're Britain, um, because nobody else is going to give you that space. But somehow the psychology of the British people voting for the referendum, voting for leaving, um, is still heavily, heavily influenced by those dreams of the 19th century, of the Pax Britannica. And so... That also has been then pushed directly by uh, media for decades. By the way, a young reporter in Brussels called Boris Johnson, who just spread direct lies about what the European Union does and what the European Union um, doesn't do with respect to British law and legislation. But for, for decades, you've got tabloids and some slightly more serious newspapers pushing a narrative that somehow Europe is a source of evil. And um, that's in combination with this past long gone, uh, Brits engage in what I think can safely be called one of the biggest acts of self-harm in, in modern history for a nation. I mean, it, 
it, it, it cannot be underestimated how damaging leaving the European Union, how damaging Brexit is, has been, is and will be for Britain. Uh, and one of the consequences there that we then can look at from a geopolitical perspective is that in this world that is no longer bipolar, as we just answered with respect to the listener's question, is no longer even multipolar, if you want a spe- if you want to influence the world in your own image, you have to work together with others. And there's no better, more efficient way of working together with others than the European Union. This is true for any EU member, but especially for Britain, which was one of the big three: France, Germany, and Britain. If you they had got huge advantages uh, from the European Union, they had even an special deal with the European Union where the, the, the terms of their membership were more favorable um, than the terms of other other members, negotiated by Margaret Thatcher, by the way. Uh, you had a position of first among equals in Brussels that very few other nations, only France and Germany basically, could claim to emulate. Britain in the 21st century absolutely needed to work together with the EU and and they shot themselves in the foot in the most horrible way possible. I mean, if I recall some of the statements I heard during that time, it was a lot about Europe is holding us back. We could be doing so much better if we were on our own. Uh, we could go back into the world and basically be what we once were. And I think that uh, see something that's very close to me as a German, just because I've heard it's so many times being directed uh, at me, is that whenever there's a conversation happening and maybe, I don't know, you're comparing countries or maybe even football, there will always this, uh, there will always be this chant that comes up or the song, uh, well, I think it's a chant more, two world wars and one world cup, um, which is going back to the United Kingdom having won two world wars against Germany and theoretically uh, having won uh, one world cup against Germany. Uh, and this well, not theoretically, is, they did win, Dario, get over it. <laughs> no, no, the, theoretically, um, because there, there, there was a mistake. Um, but, um, so yeah, so they, this, this to me always kind of showed this, um, because whenever I hear this then, I'm mean, sitting there, I'm like, okay, um, so, and now? So you, you're, you're now bringing up something from the past that has very little relevance in, in, the, in, in, the, in the present. And this to me, I think symbolizes this this desire to go back to this once great empire or to go back to the past and and kind of claim that status from the past for today yeah it, the insanity of of that phrase and then I, I when i studied in the uk so i lived there for uh four and a half years I, I heard it very often, and especially when, uh, of course, when Britain was playing Germany, uh, but also also just in a general sense, the insanity, of course, of a phrase like that, two world wars and one world cup, what does that even mean? But it's exactly right. It's it's like, it's, it's a sense that what makes you great is your past. And instead of looking towards the present and the future, you need to cling on to those victories, footballing or military, doesn't matter, apparently, uh, of, of, of the past of previous generations. It is a sign of people who do not really know who they want to be tomorrow, but they're very proud of who they were yesterday, right? And and that is dangerous. That is incredibly dangerous because it makes you uneasy with a changing world. It makes it difficult for you to adapt to changing worlds. 
with respect to this idea, and you rightfully pointed this out, that the EU was somehow holding Britain back. The question, the follow-up question that anyone should ask people who make that statement, you should ask, what is it actually that uh, you want to get rid of? What is it that somehow makes the European Union bad for you? And when, when you ask that, then people come up with either ridiculous stories, like the nonsense myth about bananas being limited, that, that the EU decides what kind of bananas can be sold in British supermarkets and uh, what type can't, which was basically based on nothing, on, on, on lies by the tabloids. Um, or people refer to laws that Britain helped shape and that Britain actually has implemented itself domestically without EU interference. So there's this idea that everything, there was this idea that everything that was wrong was because of the EU, but in reality, people cannot point out what it is that the EU contributes to making their world, uh, their, their lives or their country worse, because there are very few or none of such things. So there's this whole narrative based on smoke, based on nothing, um, that, that was the basis of the Brexit vote. And that kind of narrative can only be powerful and influential if it somehow triggers these delusions about your past, right? Uh, these delusions about, yeah, everything was better before because we were great, we were an empire, we were wonderful. Uh, by the way, we should also point out there that Britain has never gone through the analysis of whether their empire was actually so wonderful or whether they had committed an awful lot of horrific crimes, but that's that's a whole different story. Um, we were this great empire, and somehow, since the EU, we are nothing. But that, of course, is misinterpreting history. Uh, the Britain joined the EU in large part because Europe had been on the decline after the Second World War, and the way to overcome that problem was to join forces together. So the, the problem is not the EU. The problem existed before the EU and the EU tried to remedy that. And so now in 2022, you still have the Commonwealth, which, I mean, was, was one of the uh, items brought up during the Brexit debate. Ah, don't worry, we don't need the European Union. We will still have the Commonwealth. Um, and how does this influence and shape uh, like this, this British mentality? Yeah, so the Commonwealth from a British perspective, is still sort of your colonies, but under a different name. Uh, like, hey, we still control a lot of the world, but in reality, but, but, but we just don't call it a colony. But in reality, of course, the Commonwealth is just a group of independent nations that might in certain, uh, at certain times deal uh, with Britain as, as a partner, and at other times it, they won't. The fact that over the Commonwealth you still have, you had Queen Elizabeth and now King Charles, as the nominal head of state is almost irrelevant from a practical perspective. I mean, in many Commonwealth countries, there has been this continuous debate and uh, it's very likely that they're going to change their head of state very soon because it doesn't make any sense to have the Queen or King of England somehow rule Australia or rule Canada or anything like that, um, at least nominally, symbolically. That doesn't make any sense. But from a British perspective, the fact that their monarch is still the head of state of all those Commonwealth nations somehow then represents power, represents influence. In practice, it really doesn't. I mean, it's a useful network. That's it. It's a useful diplomatic network. And it, it, it's sometimes easier to work together with Commonwealth countries than with non-Commonwealth countries. 
but from a practical perspective, it, it, it is nowhere near as important as British people seem to believe it is. Um, and a lot of those countries are more and more getting annoyed with this British attitude towards them. I mean, India has already said goodbye to the Commonwealth. Um, and you, you see even countries like Australia more and more just going their own way. The Commonwealth is a, another symbol that in many ways blocks Britain from facing reality. It is still something that makes them feel really, really important and, and, and large. And in some ways, the way, in some ways that is similar to how France looks at the Francophone world, that, that somehow they believe that countries like Senegal and, and elsewhere still belong to their sphere of influence and they very actively try to enforce that. It, it, it makes Europeans feel bigger than they really are. Uh, and it's in the case of Britain, that's very much the case. And it feeds into this very damaging narrative that somehow they still stand above the rest because of their empire. And yeah, to see how this damaging narrative is maybe damaging uh, the world in, in, in any like material ways. Uh, let's move on to our next category. What is the problem? And I think, I mean, as, as, as the last time, we again have a list of, of, of problems uh, that, that kind of are created through, through this delusion. Um, I think the first one, uh, and, and you, already, you already hinted at this uh, or explained why this is problematic, but the first one should be Brexit. Because uh, I think that this one is simply the most damaging one that you have, you have at least at least that I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah, br Brexit is a hugely important event, uh, both for the European Union and for Britain, but more so for Britain because the European Union is has been weakened in terms of numbers and statistically, uh, you know, its economy is now smaller because the uh, the UK is out. Um, it has um, a smaller, small, fewer military capabilities and things like that, even though those military capabilities are mostly uh, channeled through NATO and there, of course, the UK and the European countries still work together. Um, but there is an argument to be made that Brussels actually in some ways has been reinforced by Brexit because the UK was always a little bit difficult within Brussels, was always sort of holding Brussels back. And now the axis of Berlin and Paris can sort of push things forward uh, more easily without London interfering. So it's, it's, it's sort of a gray, ambiguous assessment whether this was good or bad for the EU. But I can tell you that European bureaucrats are really liking this new situation. Yeah, and I mean, and it has ended any other exit debate. I know if you, if you remember, there were the Grexit, the Italicsit, the Frexit. Um, Even Nexit, the Netherlands, yeah. I mean, all of all of these uh, exit debates, uh, I, I think, are pretty much over. I, at least I haven't heard about any of them uh, since um, since absolutely. countries could observe how terrible the exit for the for the for the United Kingdom has been. Absolutely, I, it, in in that sense, <laughs> Britain took one for the team, right? They 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 showed what not to do um, because they showed how incredibly damaging this is, and it's not just damaging in terms of bilateral, multilateral relations with other European countries. It's not just damaging in terms of the process of going out, which is already a very painful process. It's, it's, it's complicated and, and, and it leads to an awful lot of direct harm. But it is more than anything damaging because it doesn't give you anything that you didn't have before. But it takes away a lot, a lot of influence in the world. And I think that is the, for, 
you know, in, in so for a country like Belgium or a country like Austria, they don't really care about their global influence in the way that Britain does. But for Britain, that still very much sees itself as a world leader, it basically took away one of its most potent abilities to influence the world and to be powerful. And, and other countries, such as Italy, uh, obviously look at that and think, no, thank you very much. Uh, I, I will give that a pass. The long-term economic damage is also going to be very clear over time. And, and I would argue, but this is a little bit more contentious, but the European Court of Justice being removed from British politics takes away a very powerful dampener on what specific governments can do to their own populations, not just in Britain, but elsewhere, right? I, it creates a, a legal obstacle for governments that drastically want to change their own inner makeup. And I think that is one of the main dangers for the 21st century overall, that governments are going to go in an extreme direction. And certainly in a country like Britain that already doesn't have a constitution in the way that France or Germany or others have, uh, that it could be very, very dangerous. So long-term economically, politically, but especially from our perspective, geopolitically, Brexit has done a lot of damage to the UK and probably a bit of damage to the European Union as well. And another result is then in general deluded politicians. I mean, we've uh, in, in a past episode, uh, you already talked about Liz Truss. Um, and we, I mean, we've seen uh, the, the other day was an article in, in the German news asking whether we should actually remember Liz Truss' name or that this would be another politician, uh, prime minister in the United Kingdom that would be replaced within the next few months because they've had such a high turnover of prime ministers in the past few years. Um, and yeah, Liz Truss just seems to be the latest product of, of these developments of someone who is really deep, deep inside that bubble, inside that Western bubble. And with this making... Well, if, if anything, questionable policy cho choices, and if we analyzed in the in episode 10, in our recap episode, really bad policy choices with regards to, for example, the war in Ukraine. Liz Truss is someone who has clearly developed with an inherent belief in the, the extreme version of market um, politics, uh, focusing on keeping business happy, focusing on... Uh, making sure that GDP is growing without much sensitivity towards the underlying dangers that that entails. And at the same time, a sense of superiority about this hyper-liberal, hyper-individualistic approach to world affairs. And that means that the moment that something like Ukraine happens, she can jump there just like Boris Johnson did. She can jump up and say, we are going to defend freedom. We are going to defend the Ukrainians because we are the harbingers. We are the protectors of Western liberalism. We are the protectors of uh, Europe against Russian aggression. We, were that, we took that position already in the 20th century against the Soviet Union. Look at all our wonderful James Bond films. Um, and now we will take up that position against Putin. We protect liberalism, freedom, and the West against those who want, want to do that, that, uh, us harm. Whereas in reality, of course, the story is much, much more nuanced. It's much more complex, but that is not something that happens, that is that gets processed in this trust's brain. She just automatically, Pavlovian, I would say, jumps on the barricade 
with very scary results. Especially in the current political and economic environment where you have an energy crisis in the United Kingdom, they're very, and we already mentioned that there's one in five people is in poverty. Uh, the, the last prediction I read is that energy bills might, uh, might climb up to 80% compared to last year. So you have all of these developments and which pushes Liz Truss into a position of a manager, which we have, again, uh, a, a, like a theme that we've discussed in the past, that we are, that especially in the Western world, we're no longer led by leaders, but we are managed by managers. Um, and then at the same time, you have something that, I mean, I, again, by, by saying this, I want to be careful not to be put into a corner here, but you, the United Kingdom sent 3.8 uh, billion pounds in 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 aid, uh, whatever aid it, it will be in the end, uh, military aid, humanitarian aid, uh, to Ukraine in kind of supporting that external fight on a foreign policy level. While on a domestic level, um, there's a lot of criticism, a lot of poverty um, that needs to be dealt with that might benefit from uh, from money like this. It's not necessary. I mean, I'm not trying to, to play out one against the other, but uh, there are these serious questions to be raised that we've kind of pointed at in the beginning, where yeah, if, if your internal identity is not clear and if your internal problems are not solved, then you might want to be careful with your foreign policy adventures. Yes. Um, and this is not a foreign policy adventure in the sense of, I believe that we should share our incredible wealth with the rest of the world, because that's something that we mentioned in our episodes with international cooperation. Even if you have poverty at home, there's a moral and also a practical case to be made to still be sharing some of your wealth with others that has long-term good benefits. But this is very specifically an awful lot of money going to Ukraine, which is fighting Russia, which very much helps this image of Britain protecting the world against all evil. From its island, from its untouchable island, they will be the defenders of Western values and, 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 and Western freedoms and, and Western liberalism and Western, Western capitalism. Um, and you mentioned the manager aspect before. So having managers as leaders of a country is bad enough. Um, and, and there are pretty bad examples of that um, that we have mentioned previously but having a manager whose intuitive behavior is extreme whose intuitive approach to problem solving is extreme without articulating a clear vision of where those where those actions lead to what you actually want to accomplish is deeply deeply dangerous right so the the Lack of having a vision is bad enough, but it gets even worse if your intuitive behavior is on the extreme side of things. And that's exactly what happens with someone like Liz Truss, to a certain degree with Boris Johnson as well, except that Boris Johnson was more practical in many ways. He just wanted to be liked and loved and elected. And he didn't have that strong, intuitive, that, that hardcore um, pro-market approach to the world, for example, that, that Liz Truss does have. And he didn't and he he used Ukraine and the war in Ukraine to boost his own image as a Churchillian leader um, on the world stage. This trust is not really that worried, I believe, from what we can say see about 
being a Trotillian leader, she actually intuitively believes that she represents this bulwark of, of freedom. And that is in many ways much more dangerous. Hence our uh, whole podcast on the Western bubble. With a Churchillian leader, you mean uh, British prime ministers leading like Winston Churchill during the Second World War, right? Exactly. Being the symbol for the fight of good versus evil. And um, I'm talking very much about the symbol because, of course, we can talk a lot about Churchill and whether he was actually such a good guy or not. But it is undoubtedly true that Churchill became like this bulldog symbol of we will resist no matter what against Nazi aggression. In reality, of course, the Soviet Union and the United States put in much more work against Germany than Britain did. But um, the, the symbolism is something that always appeals to Boris Johnson. And he very much jumped on the possibility to do that for Ukraine. For Liz Truss, it is more a matter of, oh, hold on, we're the good guys. Ukraine is a democracy because it ticks the box democracy. It ticks the box liberal. It chose its president. Russia They're really bad. I've grown up thinking that the Soviet Union was bad. Now Putin is clearly a dictator, authoritarian. They invade Ukraine. It is now our sacred duty to jump in without any broader understanding or perspective on what kind of world you want to create or what kind of country you want to create internally. She jumps into that fray. And that is very, very, very scary. And it's not only Liz Truss, but the population as a whole. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you live with seeing your society decline in front of your eyes and seeing the power of your country decline globally in front of your eyes decade after decade, then you will jump on any opportunity to tell yourself, oh, we're, keep, we're fighting the good fight. So Britain is one of the least, if you look at the British press, it has been one of the least critical uh, of the Western world when it comes to analyzing Ukraine. Uh, the British press has been worshipping Zelensky. It has been worshipping Ukraine and it has been demonizing Putin to no end. Now, this is not us taking a position in favor of Russia. I mean, just for our listeners to be very clear, uh, Putin completely unnecessarily, idiotically and destructively invaded Ukraine. He is absolutely the one responsible and Ukraine is absolutely legitimized in fighting back against that Russian aggression. There's no doubt about that before people start sending in angry messages. But the idea that it is simply a black and white fight that the West needs to take a aggressively uh, belligerent position in is something that is questionable, something that we have to be very careful of. And there's no country that has been as enthusiastic in taking that position as Britain because they see themselves as those guardians for everything that is right and proper in the Western world. And how does all of this become problematic in foreign policy? I mean, we've, we've hinted at it already, but like clear cut, how is this problematic um, on a foreign policy level? It is problematic because it feeds into this Western bubble narrative, which on the one hand does a lot of damage externally, Uh, by taking aggressive action in countries and in places where maybe a little bit of modesty and restraint would be preferable. And also it does a lot of damage internally because what it does is it puts the emphasis on your identity being defined by the outside, by your identity being defined by who you're fighting, who you're struggling against, 
So by who you are not. And it takes away the responsibility of thinking, who do we want to be? From a positive perspective, not who is our enemy, but who are we and how can we be the good guys? How can we actually strengthen our society in the right way possible? So every time that we are talking about the fight in Ukraine and um, supporting um, freedom against Chinese or Russian oppression, we are not spending time thinking about, okay, but isn't the main way to stay a prosperous, happy society to actually strengthen your own internal bonds, to strengthen your own internal um, dynamics and make sure that you're doing the right thing at home rather than telling others how to behave abroad. And this then also has really clear-cut implications. Um, so we've mentioned it already on, uh, on other examples, but to be very specific, um, you then have this uh, country that is basically happy to engage in war on all levels uh, because... And I think in, in class, you always called the United Kingdom uh, the smaller brother of the of the United States um, or even a puppet. Uh, yeah, or, or lapdog. And, and I always then point out that the Netherlands is one of the other ones. You know, I think it, it's fair to say that the UK, the Netherlands, Australia are countries that when the Washington says jump, they will jump. Uh, and uh, yeah, instances uh, where Washington uh, says, has said jump was the war, uh, the invasion of Iraq of 2003. Um, you have Syria, um, Libya. I, I don't. Well, in Libya, the United States didn't say jump. It was it was very much France and United Kingdom who jumped themselves. Uh, but you you have this, and now the war in Ukraine. Um, but so you have this country that is then very happy to to go abroad and implement their vision of the world, or at least fight for freedom. Absolutely, and it is true that they uh, they were the main instigators for Libya, but they first asked Washington for permission whether they could jump or not, if we continue with that analogy. So they said, uh, Barack Obama, could we please jump? Uh, and the White House said, sure, you jump. Uh, the It has become a tradition almost during our series to mention these wars, and especially the war in Iraq, but I think that is incredibly important. It might be a bit repetitive, but... It seems as if in our Western bubble, in our society, we forget about the horrific action that we take as a society. And we move on, not just moving on like, oh, well, that's a dark part of history that I don't want to think about. But we move on as if it never really happened. And as if overall, we're still being the good guys in the world, right? And, and, and that's why it's so important to keep on reminding ourselves, especially of a war like Iraq, um, for which there was no justification, but Tony Blair, Prime Minister Tony Blair, together with President George W. Bush, desperately, desperately pushed for it and tried to find any kind of justification they could out of an inner belligerence against Saddam Hussein and Iraq. And that kind of approach can only happen if you have deep psychological dynamics inside of your country occurring. In the case of the United States, it was very obvious, the the lingering anger and the lingering pain because of 9-11 that had only happened two years earlier and that was then abused, if you like, by the neoconservative movement to push for a war in Iraq. In the case of Britain, it is very much this sense of, yes, we've lost our empire, but we are still the guardians of liberal democracy across the world. And of course, we will support the United States because we have this special relationship 
it seems that the only people who talk about special relationship with the United States are the Brits. Um, the United States doesn't know what they're going on about, but uh, you know, Britain still seems to believe that somehow there's something special in their contact with the United States. And that is very much part of this historical path that we've been analyzing so far. And of course, the danger of that is that you have powerful countries, the United States, but also the UK, who take action based on geopolitical or economic or sometimes ideological uh, convictions, but they hide it into an objective morality. They hide it as if, no, no, it's not because we want to accomplish something that is good for us, but we are good for the world. And what we do is spread our goodness to others. And the UK is an incredible proponent of that, of that kind of approach to the world. Like we, we are inherently good and inherently our action, whether it is in Iraq or whether it's elsewhere, is done out of the goodness for our heart because we know how to run society. While that is happening, British society is desperately on the decline. And so now that we've we've analyzed exactly what the problem is and how this, uh, I mean, what the bubble is and how this is damaging it, uh, then let's move into the final category. What now? And I mean, here it it seems like there's a pattern uh, because a lot of a lot of the themes, at least that we've touched upon today, uh, to me sound very similar from what we've talked about in the episodes, uh, the rise and the fall of the United States foreign policy. Uh, but what's the what's the recipe? Uh, how can how can the United Kingdom uh, basically heal itself? Yeah, the the, the pattern and uh, episodes are going to be a bit repetitive in that sense. Um, as always, is for the West and in this case Britain to stop pretending first of all that somehow there's something inherently better about them ideologically, in, you know, philosophically, intellectually than others. And to stop being so influenced by a very twisted version of history that you've been living by. Um, the lack of analysis of your historical path, proper analysis, I mean, there are loads, I mean, infinite history books written about British history, but not actual, a, actual processes like what happened in Germany, for example, after the Second World War, of saying, hang on, some things are really good about our country, but we've also done some pretty horrendous things. Let's make sure that we avoid those mistakes in the future. That process has never taken place in Britain, nor in France, uh, nor in the Netherlands or elsewhere. And so what's, what happens is that Britain is living off a past that never really existed, and as a result, is increasingly detached from the present reality and from the future reality. So if it wants to create a better tomorrow, they need to first shed this, this past image and stop believing that somehow there's something that inherently good about them. Then what they need to do is start saying, what are the main problems within our society? And we demand from our politicians, we demand from our leadership, a vision of what 2050 is going to look like or what... Uh, 2080 is going to look like, where do we want to go? What kind of Britain do we want to have in 50 years time? And none of that requires imperial thinking. In fact, a lot of that requires a very critical look at past imperial thinking to avoid the mistakes for tomorrow. 
Yeah, from a German perspective, I can I can definitely uh, agree to that. When it comes, I mean, we call this Vergangenheitsbewältigung, uh, dealing with with one's own past. And uh, I mean, I I think we've already basically hinted at that, but we will definitely do an episode on uh, kind of dealing. I mean, dealing with countries' pasts and how different countries have done that, and how this is also uh, another version of the Western bubble. Uh, but yeah, I can definitely attest to that, that um, when it comes to seeing what went wrong, what went right in history, uh, and how do we build off of the strengths and how do we deal with, with everything that went wrong, uh, which is an ongoing process, it's not like that's over, uh, that, this, that this definitely helps and it most importantly uh, gets rid of these horrible sentiments of, ooh, we are British, we are good. Um, I mean, there's very few Germans that I know who are saying, oh, we're German, we're good. It's usually uh, the other way around. And that is something that is deeply underestimated in a country like Britain about Germany. So I, I always get genuinely angry when there's once again a TV program, nothing to do with past, nothing to do with history on BBC or, where, or wherever else. And Germany gets mentioned and someone makes a joke about Hitler or the Nazis. The lingering idea that the the lessons to learn from Germany are related to Nazi Germany is insane. What you what Britain and France need to learn from is how Germany dealt with itself in the nineteen late nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties up to this day. How Germany actually was capable of doing that, and Britain doesn't seem to understand that that Germany has been incredibly, incredibly strong in self analysis and avoiding the horrible mistakes that were made previously. And as a result, Germany is a much better run country than Britain at the moment. And we also have to admit we had outside help. Uh, so maybe, um, I mean, we already called uh, the UK the United States watchdog. Uh, no, not watchdog, lapdog. Um, however, we've also said that the United States has similar problems, um, but it always helps if there's a bigger power or a a good friend uh, helping you with this process, maybe forcing you into this, like an intervention. Sure, but here, here, here you're showing German modesty once again, right? I mean, a, a British person would say, yes, yes, all our successes are our own. And the Germans, no, 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 no. We can't be too proud of ourselves. We can't, we, 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 we have learned our lessons. Germans always need help from the outside. <laughs> well, and this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the United Kingdom. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com. We will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to, our, to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western Bubble. That is it from my side, Boulder. Which closing quote did you pick for us today? For this episode, I uh, chose a quote from the late, great Doris Lessing, British novelist uh, who died in 2013. And this quote directly refers to the British Empire, but in many ways we could say the same thing about Western culture or Western ideology in 2022. When I was a girl, the idea that the British Empire could ever end was absolutely inconceivable, and it just disappeared like all the other empires. You know, when people talk about the British Empire, they always forget that all the European countries had empires. 